He was very adjusted, social, athletic. I mean, he was the last kid on earth, I would think, you know, would display any problems, but I guess he kept it all inside. Denise Roberts lost her 19-year-old son, Dylan, to overdose in 2010, just two years after losing her 41-year-old husband, Tom, to a heart attack. Dylan helped her understand addiction. I mean, he was a kid that wanted to be healthy. He wanted to get well. He made it clear to me, and that's when the light bulbs kind of went off. And he said, Mom, I'm not a bad kid. I'm a sick kid. Now, after the deaths of her husband and youngest son, Denise couldn't imagine she would have to face even more loss. However, in a cruel twist of fate, her oldest son, Matthew, also overdosed and died six years later. People say, I don't know how you do it. They they give you this look and like, I feel like I should just be, you know, a puddle of water of nothing, you know, at this point. And, And I just said, you know, what is the alternative? In this episode of Grieving Out Loud, Denise shares how she keeps going and growing despite the deaths of her husband and both sons. Well, Denise, thank you so much for joining me today. And the first thing I want to say is I don't even know how to put into words how sorry I am for the losses you have experienced. I, I, it's just, it's unbelievable to me that someone could lose three members of their family, you know, immediate members of their family and, and two children. I, I, I'm so sorry. Thank you, Angela. I appreciate that. Let's start off a little bit by talking about your kids and your family. Um, so you had Dylan and Matthew, and you got remarried. Tell me a little bit about that. Yes, I had Dylan and Matthew, and um, I got remarried to Tom. Um, he was just fabulous, and um, we were the Brady Bunch, or so we thought. Um, I had. Matthew and Dylan, and he had two children as well. And um, they were all very, very close in age. And we, when we met, they were two, three, four, and seven. So very young. And wow. uh, and how old were Dylan and Matthew? Were they the older ones or the younger ones? No, they were um, kind of in the middle. Uh, yeah, Matthew would be the oldest at seven and Dylan was three still very young and, and, and the blending, sometimes blended families don't work so well, but the blending went pretty well for you guys. Oh, I, I wouldn't say that, but, but we definitely got the hang of it. It was a, a long time. You know, we, we dated and blended and, and learned and grew and built a big house and coached our kids. I mean, it was, it was great. Unexpectedly, you lost Tom at a very young age your husband. Tell me what happened. Yes. Tom was um, the epitome of health. We also had a health business. He worked out, you know, we had supplements, um, lived a very clean, healthy lifestyle. Um, He was originally from California, but we were landlocked in Las Vegas. So he would surf a lot. And that was his passion. He was on one of his uh, biannual trips with some buddies and um, went to uh, Nicaragua. I mean, he was a big surfer. So he was surfing at Nicaragua, Costa Rica, El Salvador. He took the boys um, one time as well. 
it was just on the surf trip. Um, he was there three days or so. And his friend said he was on top of the world that morning, surfing the best waves and had gone back and ate lunch and took a nap and didn't, didn't wake up. They heard some kind of loud snoring and they woke, tried to wake him up and ask him if he was okay. And he mouthed the words, I'm fine. And um, that was it. Tom was 41 oh years my old. Gosh. No evidence, no prior heart issues, no medications, nothing. You always think, you know, you're, you're protected from that kind of thing if you take good care of yourself. I think it's kind of the way we feel about overdoses in this country, too. If you're a good parent, if you do everything right, if you... If your kids have good opportunities, they're going yeah. to be protected. It's the same. I'm, I'm drawing a parallel here, but I mean, you would have no reason to think anything like this would happen to Tom. Right. In fact, um, you know, hindsight, as you say, I look back and think, you know, had he been 50, 60 pounds overweight, um, they would have, you know, sent him for a stress test or EKG or EEG or something. But he went in with frequent um, bronchitis. And I later learned um, that you shouldn't have bronchitis several times a year. And it was probably, it was more of a heart issue than a breathing issue. He just never, every time he would get bronchitis, he didn't want to go to the doctor, get an inhaler, take antibiotics. That's all they would do. So I kind of wondered. And so after... He passed. That was a nightmare because he was in a, another country. The autopsy showed he had uh, probably prior heart attacks and didn't know it. He had scarring on the heart wow. and had, and again, looking back, um, he would work out and his shoulder or left arm was a little sore, left arm, right? But at the time he thought, oh, I pushed myself too much in my sure. work. Being 41, very trim know nothing. Right. But had he presented a little differently, he would have gotten the medical care probably. It's so but, unfortunate. And so his death obviously affected your entire family, including your boys. Right. Right. And um, it did, you know, more than I even realized, probably more than they did um, down the road, in particular, uh, Dylan, because just before Tom went on this trip, we took Dylan into another rehab and Dylan was combative and he said some not so nice things to Tom. And that was the last time he spoke to Tom. So after he passed, he had that, that guilt and um, he just had a very hard time with it. So you had already been dealing with addiction issues with Dylan, who was just 19 when he died of overdose. Tell me when that started and what happened. Died when he was 19. It wasn't, and I didn't learn of it until about 17. Um, it was actually at Tom's funeral is when I realized it was really bad so, I mean, it was right about that same time, you know, sure, we were putting him in a detox or rehab just before Tom went on that trip and passed. But then at the funeral, we couldn't keep Dylan out of the bathroom, which, again, um, he just couldn't stay in one room. And 
So two weeks after Barry and Tom, I was then driving Dylan to Salt Lake City, Utah for a nine-month inpatient treatment center. You got him help. Yeah. 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 That's yeah. what we're supposed to do, right? Yes. Yes, absolutely. And he would have been 17 at the time. 17. Right. Uh-huh. Right. And yeah. how did that go? How did that first treatment work for him? You know, I thought it went great. And um, he was an excellent student as are most or, you know, several that I know of. I mean, they're in rehab, they rebel a little bit, but eventually, you know, they, they do well. What I know now is it's much too short. It all depends on your insurance or the funding as to, you know, how quickly you get out. We know now that it takes about eight, 13 to 24 months for the brain to recover. Right. 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 After, after use at, you know, substance use disorder, you know, just to, but most people get 28 days yeah, if they're lucky. Right. Um, so he did get nine months in that, but you're saying after he got out, it was the follow through the follow-up. Right. Right. There was minimal, um, you know, go to meetings, do this or that, I guess on your own. Um, and he was successful for a little bit, but the core of the problem was never addressed, you know, which is more, which is mental health issues. What mental health issues do you think Dylan suffered from? Definitely dealing with the death of Tom. He had an awful lot of um, remorse and grief of his own and didn't process that. He also, I later learned, had, had a lot of bullying issues at school totally unaware of. And, and I think also our divorce was an issue. Um, He was very adjusted, social, athletic. I mean, he was the last kid on earth, I would think, you know, would display any problems, but I guess he kept it all inside. And on the um, appearance outwards, he Look like he was fine and he would verbalize that. But sounds sounds so much like Emily. I mean, she was smart and athletic and good in yeah. school and beautiful and all these things. And she was also most affected by the divorce that I went through with her dad. So, mm-hmm. you know, I think it affects every kid differently. And and I always say you can't say I mean, half of all marriages end in divorce. So if that always caused, you know, right. kids to turn to substances, but could be a part of it for sure. Sure. Right. And, you know, we never had any serious family counseling or that kind of thing with regard to the divorce. It was. Yeah. And I took Emily to counseling for, you know, during the divorce and afterwards. And I don't know. I mean, it's, it's such a hard puzzle to fit together, isn't it? Right. And I think it ties into a whole stigma of, you know, people not talking about a mental health issues, right? Um, if you're depressed or suffering from depression, it goes right alongside with, I mean, suicide. I just saw in the news yesterday a college football player came out, was on a morning show talking about, you know, him his suicide uh, attempts and how he wanted to talk about it and how alone he felt. And I thought, wow, yes, you just you don't hear of that. And I think we are starting, I think for definitely for sure, we're starting to talk about these things more and suicide, especially, I still think the stigma is so strong oh. around substance use disorder and overdose or, you know, now it's just 
it's poisoning. I mean, it's just fentanyl. It's a drug supply is contaminated. I always say if, if people were putting fentanyl into alcohol in a bar and people were dropping over dead, what kind of reaction would we have in this country rather than, Oh, it's an illegal drug. They weren't supposed to be doing that. Well, we all know that. Right. But it's that stigma, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. You're absolutely right. And um, that is where it needs to start. You're absolutely correct. The, um, the education and also the science of it. I think, you know, not just the abstinence of don't do it, probably more of the um, harm reduction or this is what it does um, to really kind of spell it out for people. You didn't get a chance to finish um, Dylan's story. So could you finish about what happened to Dylan? Dylan was in uh, three rehabs in about two years nine months. Uh, one was, um, about three months. And then the last one, um, like six weeks. So, I mean, he was a kid that wanted to be healthy. He wanted to get well. He made it clear to me. And that's when the light bulbs kind of went off. And he said, mom, I'm not a bad kid. I'm a sick kid. Oh my gosh. That just like wrenched at my heart because I'll be honest. I just kept saying like, why can't you just not do this? You know, Um, just stop, you know what it does. And um, I didn't get it. And so, oh, and when he said, I'm not a bad kid, I'm just a sick kid. It's because, I mean, he would take all kinds of things from me and pawn it. And then come give me the pawn slip and say, mom, I'm sorry, here you go. And again, I'm just like, oh God, it was just breaking my heart. And and he knew it, Um, you know, that he was just trying at all costs. Well, um, he got out of his last rehab and he said, mom, whatever I'm doing isn't working. So I found um, a place in Phoenix, Arizona. I'm going to come home, get my stuff. And I'm going to go there and I'm going to get connected. I'll get a job, find a church. Great. So he came home, he had his favorite meal. It was, I'll never forget. It was a day after Christmas. And, um, and then his father rode with him to Phoenix from Las Vegas. And he, um, went into a halfway house. I got plenty of texts, talked to him first few days. He, had his guitar, he'd found a church. And then on December 30th, that morning, I got the phone call starting out with, ma'am, where are you? I later learned that um, he had stopped at a Mexican restaurant before going to the halfway house with his dad. I presume he had picked up because he was found in his bed in the halfway house, deceased. And you think he got the drugs at the restaurant? Yes. And what was it that killed him? Heroin. And was it laced with fentanyl at the time? You know, they didn't even check. Because we want to point out to people, this was 2010. Correct. Yep. Yep. I don't think I'd even heard of it. In 2010, it wasn't, uh, no one checked. I always thought that because he had been clean for six weeks, which is again, he just gotten out of rehab. 
He came to my house, had dinner, drove to Phoenix. So, I mean, I'm just not sure, but he got there. It was a matter of three days. Um, and he used. And this was two years after Tom had died. Two years. Right. Yeah. So you're still really early in the grieving process with losing your husband. Oh, um, yeah. I mean, I don't even know. I, I mean, I would end up at work an hour, two hours late because I literally would lose my way. Mm-hmm. I mean, you probably understand that. I mean, I, I do. Just, I think grief is trauma to the brain. I think, and I think this sudden unexpected loss mm-hmm. is the worst kind of trauma because right. in both cases you weren't, you know, expecting them to die. And I just feel like it's almost like brain damage. Like, and people yes. don't understand that they, they want to give you a little time, maybe three days or two weeks, but right. then they want you to pick up and move on. Right. And I don't think that's really humanly possible, especially for sudden death, especially when it's a child, you know, or a spouse. I, I right. Right. Unrealistic. Absolutely. We have unrealistic expectations of people. Right. Were you able to keep your job? Cause I know some moms who've lost kids that lost their jobs too. Yeah. Um, no, I did. My heart just aches for you. So, so you're in this like fog, right? Fog. Yes. Was it different losing your husband and losing your son? Was it different for you? Yes. Yes. And you know, it's, I can speak to both of them and they are so very different. So yes, my husband's death was very unexpected, but I never had that feeling of, I should have saved him. I should have known there was something more I could do. I mean, sure, but no. Um, I mean, I actually, he gave me the greatest gift. Um, before he passed, he had, written on a little sticky note, again, not knowing he was a great man of God. And anyway, he always wrote to-do lists and he wrote a little to-do list. And um, it was um, number one, seek after God. Um, Number two, um, protect your children. Three, um, learn to control your temper. (laughs) And I kind of chuckled and Anyway, there was a couple more. And then the last one was, um, oh, it's spelled love, L-O-V-E. Love, offer, value, uh, oh gosh, and uh, something else, your wife. And, and I just was like, oh my gosh. I mean, it was truly Tom's last to-do list and he had done that. Um, so I had, and I didn't find that until um, a couple of weeks after he passed, it was in a book um, that I had been reading on a plane that we had just spent our anniversary together. Uh, so anyway, um, it was just a sense of almost peace because something came over me and I told him um, the last day I saw him, which is strange, if anything ever happened to you while you're surfing, I'd be okay with that because I know how much you love it. And this man had worked so hard, but he had taken three weeks off from work. Just Which I bet was unusual, right? Yep. Yeah. We, we were doing well. I mean, he worked as a bellman at a hotel. So, I mean, we had a little business, but three weeks. And he surfed a week in California with his kids. He um, spent a week with me in Hawaii for our anniversary. 
And then he was in Nicaragua for a few days um, with his buddies. I think what you're talking about with a spouse is that as a mother, you feel so responsible for this human being from Uh, the moment you find out you're pregnant, you know, and give birth and you feel like you can somehow control and take care of everything and make everything okay. I think we as mothers, it was just in us, right? That's just ingrained in us. So obviously it feels different because you don't feel that way about your spouse. I mean, you may love and care for your spouse. You may, your spouse is another adult that you weren't responsible for from the moment of conception. Right. (laughs) But right. Your, your kids, you know, my boys and even after one, but then two, you kind of just like, what? I said, okay, God, you have my attention, you know, now what? And so, All right, so we need to talk about Matthew because, you know, I interviewed another woman on this podcast who lost five children to overdose out of 12. Yeah. And she lives in the East coast in an area that's very riddled with the opioid epidemic. Obviously. I mean, some areas mm-hmm. it's everywhere. It's everywhere. Right. Um, some areas a little worse than others, but can't imagine that, but you know, to lose your spouse, then to lose your younger son, Dylan, and then his brother was four years older than him. Right. Yeah. And had he always struggled with addiction as well, or was it something that came up later? No, No. in fact, all while Dylan was struggling, Matthew came to me and said, mom, he is going to die. You don't understand. He's doing this bad stuff. He's going to die. I said, Matthew, don't, don't talk like that. No, he's not. I mean, I didn't know he was shooting um, at that time, but so no, Matthew didn't until shortly after Dylan passed. They were very close, even though they were four years apart, shared the same birthday. And I used to get calls from the caretaker at the cemetery because Matthew was out there making a scene at night and wouldn't leave and it's just, you know, heart-wrenching, of course. But really, you really think that Matthew's use started after Dylan's death to cope with his death and or to cope with all the loss, probably? Yes. Yes. Dylan and Tom and a lot of his own issues as well. But I don't think it would have escalated like it did. You had Matthew for six years after Dylan died. Right. 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 And I bet you just lived for him. I bet you just thought like, this is it for me. I've just got him. Yeah. Yeah. That was tough. Um, Did he know that? Did he know that? Do you think? I do. In fact, um, Matthew would, after Dylan passed, he would uh, still give me cards and he would sign both their names. Um, Because the reason why I say that is because I feel like a lot of the reason what keeps me going are my other kids. I mean, there are other things too, like the mission of Emily's hope, but really I just feel like I need to keep going. Cause I have these other kids who still, even though they're adults now need, need their mom. And, and also my spouse, I, I'm not trying to downplay him because he's wonderful and right. obviously um, very important. But uh, I think that is for, for moms, like if you lose one child and you have other children, you're kind of like, okay, I still have one more or two more or whatever it might be. Mm-hmm. Right. right. And, and did Matthew get help ever? What was he using? Heroin. Um, probably. How does other- he go? If he hadn't been using in the past, how does he go? Does he go right to heroin or do you know? 
I really don't know. I think it was pills at first. And then I know he was smoking it and would never inject it. But eventually he did. The difference is that Matthew got into the system, which I know you've talked about that a little bit, and I couldn't agree more And that that is not a place for, um, for people that need real mental health. And it's not a drug issue. Well, first of all, um, you're already stigmatized as a drug user. Mm-hmm. And then if you get a record as a mm-hmm. drug user, therefore you can no longer rent places, get jobs. The shame surrounding drug use and addiction and substance use disorder, that there's so much shame wrapped up in that. And you add on another layer of shame because now you're a criminal. I think it really lowers people's self-esteem even more. Matthew was so low. He It was a very minor charge. I can't even recall, but he had to serve time and he was in a little town in Holbrook, Arizona, I remember. And and he served his time and then he got out and he was on probation. Great. We wrote letters to the judge asking him if he could transfer to Las Vegas where his family was. And he had a fiance and a baby, two-year-old girl, daughter. He wrote to the judge everything. They denied his request to transfer his probation to Las Vegas. So what are you doing? You're further isolating, keeping this kid, I mean, early 20, 20 year old in a small town, knows nobody, can't, he's working at the local gas station, um, can't get a job doing anything else, can't see his fiance or his child. So guess what happened? He was depressed. Yeah, he dealt with depression and had issues and he used and I and then he was found by himself in his bed in Arizona away from his while he was on probation. Absolutely. And as soon as the court heard that, they immediately removed the court record. And so he was 28. Right. And and that was 2016. So this is six years after Dylan died. Did, Did they test at that time for fentanyl? They did. And I had heard of it. They tested it. And and that was another thing. And there was no evidence of that. Uh, and so we know her- we know it doesn't have to have fentanyl. We know opioids kill heroin kills by itself. And it was such and I mean, I looked at the levels and it was I can't believe I'm saying this, but it's true. It was such a small amount, but it was enough to kill like it wasn't a ton, but it was just evidence that it was more he just hadn't used in forever and that little bit did make him overdose because when people do go use after a period of abstinence right um if they use the same amount they were using prior it can it can be deadly uh their their bodies can't handle what they used to use exactly um, but so you have uh, a granddaughter yes i have a, a granddaughter and a grandson and they are now 9 and 6 both Matthews and he had something to live for and he wanted to, that was the thing. And he wanted to be with his family and, and he did what he thought he needed to do. And there was, you know, just one more barrier let's put up in front of him. He wasn't distributing. He didn't have, I I think they had found like a pill in his backpack when he was driving through and that's how he got stuck in Holbrook. I just don't think, the judicial system and the criminals. Now, I know we have drug courts and there are some efforts underway, but overall, if you look at the whole picture of the criminal Mm -hmm. system, the justice system, 
they don't know really how to handle addiction and it's not a crime. I mean, it causes people to complete crime sometimes, especially you have more violent offenders with the use of methamphetamine. But I mean, we just have to figure this out. We have to make some serious shifts in our country, but I don't see that coming. No. Um, And they, um, at the time of his death, they said there wasn't any um, fentanyl and that was it. They closed the case. They didn't bother looking in his phone, trying to find out who gave it to him because he's just one more kid that died in this area. Oh, well, you know, I'm Um, so sorry. So I'm so sorry, Denise investigation. And I think, gosh, that's, you know, again, the stigma continued all the way through the end um, result, you know, even after his death, really, Mm -hmm. because nobody cared enough to prosecute this little death, little case, minor, right? Didn't matter. No. Um, Yeah. And I know that I know that prosecutors and they, they're limited by their resources as well. We all know that there's not enough money, you know, for people to do things, but when it's your kid, Mm -hmm. I, I mean, oh, I'm so sorry. So you at this point, so we're in in 2016 and thank you so much for telling me. I know because I tell Emily's story. So I am quite aware that every time I ask someone to tell their story, they relive it. And a lot of those same feelings, you can go about your daily business, right? And not be immersed in it. Not that you don't think about it different times during the day, but, but I understand I'm making you relive this to some extent, you know, to have you hash out the whole story for me. So Thank you so much for doing that. And just know that I, I know it's a heartache. I know it's a heartache to talk about it. Um, you do. And you do it day in and day out because what are the options? You know, um, we're not going to stand by and just, you know, let it continue to happen. And if anything, right. we have our voice and, you know, it'll, it'll help somewhere, someone down the line. We may not know now, but that's okay. I'm not going to stand silent anymore. And I'm sure that most people react with shock when they hear you've lost two kids to overdose, you know, let alone your husband, you know, earlier. Are you, are you, are you used to that reaction? Sort of. I mean, people say, I don't know how you do it. And I really, yes, they they give you this look and like, I feel like I should just be, you know, a puddle of water of nothing, you know, at this point. And And I just said, you know, what is the alternative? Should I just stay in bed and never get out? You could, Uh, you could, I could, you could exit, you know, some people choose that. I mean, I'm not saying I I would never say anybody should do that, but people do make choices. I, right. You're, you're right. And, but I just said, you know what, every, as much as I can, I get up, dress up and show up. That's, well, you look beautiful. <laughs> you, you, you know, I, I, and I, I appreciate that. Yeah. You, you have to just get out of bed and start yeah. putting one foot in front of the other. Right. Keep yeah. moving forward. You know, I'm just hopeful along the way that, um, you know, we can help others. Right. What, what do you think it is inside of you or what do you think it is that helps that enables you to do that, to get up, keep going about every day for the last Oh, well, it's been a while now. I mean, yeah. since 2016. Um, my strong faith in in God, and um, and I do believe that I'll be reunited with them. Um, you know, people often think that you know we have children to raise them and to you know teach them, and 
In fact, I think it's it can it's really the other way. I mean, the lessons that we learn from our children and you know, a lot of people say, well, this was their journey. Well, this was my journey too. And I am very grateful, you know, that I got to have Matthew for 19 years and Dylan for 28. I mean, I look at several people that don't, that can't have kids. So this was just part of, you know, what I'm here to do, the lessons I'm to learn. I know it's made me a better person, not bitter. I want to turn that that bitterness into helpfulness and um, doing some advocacy work um, where I can. I know for me, Emily really taught me unconditional love yes. and also taught me to be much, to get rid of judgment, to really right. be much less judgmental. Right. Um, and, right. and as you said, like just having that, having Emily for 21 years and you with Dylan for 19 and Matthew for 28. I would go through all of the, you know, there's so much pain and, 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 and frustration and worry and fear when your child has a problem and you're trying to get them help years of that for you and, and for me, and then not knowing what to do, not knowing how to help. Um, I will go through all of that again, plus the trauma of her death, just to have those years with just to have had her in my life. You know, right. go through that because it's suffering. I mean, that's a lot of suffering and, and you've done it, you know, basically times two, but also times three with the loss of your husband. So pain, there's many painful situations, but suffering to me, it's just like, um, we're there. I'm showing you right. Um, kind of just engraving the pain and digging it in even more. And, you know, that I can choose not to endure in the suffering of it so much. And um, learn how to move through the pain and the grief with my growth and growing through it with God and grace. Um, How were you able to keep your faith through all of this? Because I think a lot of people, I think your story reminds me a little bit of Job in the Bible, you know, who lost his family. And I mean, I just think like, how are you able to keep your faith? Because it's at those times that you need to rely on it, that it is the most important. And so what is your faith if you don't give it the true test, the true testament of these situations or, um, you know, the deaths of your children and your husband? Um, I wouldn't be able to say that I truly believe and, and have a faith if I don't live it. So, I mean, I tell people, you know, it's easy and the loving unconditionally, it's really easy to love people, but it's when they're not being very lovable that it's difficult. And so with these, um, with my boys and, you know, several other people, that's where your, your, your testament, your, your truth comes out, right. Of, um, who you are and how you love and, I just, I encourage people to love others where they're at, right? And and to help, you know, remove the, the stigma and all of the judgment because you may not get another moment. I, I relish in, you know, the last Christmas I had with Matthew. And um, I mean, it was wonderful. And there's, you know, several people that would say, you know, I don't want him at my house and they're not welcome here. 
for this or that. And uh, I say, okay, that's okay. But you know what? I don't have the, the guilt of, you know, what more, you know, I should have done. I know that the moments I had and the time I spent with him, um, both of them, I, I really just value. You came at it with a, from a standpoint of love. Right. Mm-hmm. I think that's so important to never stop loving that person. I tried the tough love stuff, uh, especially when all of it first started with Emily, because people told me to do that, right? Mm-hmm. Um, lots of people, counselors, yeah. you know, juvenile probation officer, lots of people, right? So, and I thought I, it was so hard. I, I can do these hard things if it means my daughter's going to be okay. I can do it. But those are the, some of the biggest mistakes I feel like looking back, you know, looking back. Oh, absolutely. Um, and I, I did it too. I mean, I might even still have a video um, on my phone. Uh, Matthew was homeless on the streets in Las Vegas, holes in his shoes, heat, sunburned. I mean, terrible conditions. And you think why, but, oh, tough love. Don't give him anything. Well, and the problem with the whole rock bottom idea, as you know, is that rock bottom is death now. I mean, look at that. The rate of overdoses is up 16% over the last year right now. I mean, we're at another record high. I know you've done a lot of advocacy work as well. What has been, what's most important to you? The stigma, I think, because I was trying to think of, well, I need to find a starting point, um, but talking about it, but there's so many different angles and avenues. um, And I really appreciate everybody's work. Um, So actually um, last year we did, um, I had a pretty large gathering to celebrate international, not celebrate, recognize International Overdose Awareness Day, August 31st. Um, but I'm now currently trying to get the state of Oklahoma to um, recognize that day and lower the flags. Oh, great idea. To remember and bring awareness and get people to talk. I mean, there's many people, they don't even know that August 31st is international. What you have to do to go through that is it's, it's unbelievable. Um, I was actually just checking the status of the bill before we came on today it's uh, it, it takes a whole lot of work and it and it might be some time, but um, I need to start with the awareness and talking about it and then um, educating at the lower levels and more health based um, response to the drug problem. And right. Because it is a disease of the brain. Right. right. You don't, but you don't have to be suffering from substance use disorder to die. Now you can just make right. one wrong choice. Too, right. um, which we need to get across to people as well. And we all know that um, kids, people's brains aren't fully developed before the age of 25. And it's even then it's pretty easy in a certain situations to make one bad choice. Right. Um, and that can lead to death because everything is laced with fentanyl. Everything. Oh, I was just saying from the medical standpoint, um, all the treatment that my kids had, um, you know, not knowing a whole lot of options, but knowing now they had to basically um, fail forward in order to get um, the next level of care, which was something I was advocating for here in Oklahoma. I went before the Drug Utilization Review Board um, because our state-funded health system would only provide one type of FDA drug to treat um people that suffered from a substance use disorder, one drug. Can you imagine? It's like, if you have an infection, you can only get one antibiotic. 
Right. And there are only drugs for opioid use disorder. So only for those suffering from addiction to opioids is the only thing you can get medication for. Right. Were you successful in changing that? Yes. Yes. Oh, congratulations. Thank you. Oklahoma does offer more than the one FDA approved um, drug. So fantastic. um, Good for you. Look at what you're doing in your son's names. That's wonderful. I mean, I love that. I, I love taking pain and and finding the purpose in it. You know, I always say that, but it sounds cliche. Maybe it's a little cliche, but I mean it because it is a place to put your pain, something to do that's constructive with it, right? Rather than destroying yourself in some way, um, you know, finding a way to to be constructive with that pain and to help others. I think it does. It helps me. Me too. Me too. Yeah. When you do have a really hard day, or a moment, a hard moment, or a hard hour, or hard whatever, and all these, you know, you're missing Dylan or Matthew or Tom. You know what your memories? That's those are the kinds of things. Like just this morning, I'm doing yoga. All of a sudden, I had a memory and started crying. Right? I mean, yeah, it can happen any day at any time. What do you do to cope, or or what gets you through those times? I have that moment, and I don't try to deny myself that. But I pick myself back up and just think of all the things I do have to be thankful for and remind myself that, that they were the true gifts to me. I love that. That's beautiful. And exactly. gratitude. Gratitude uh, makes exactly. a big difference. Yeah. yeah. Well, thank you so much for spending this time with me today and sharing your son's stories and the story of your husband. I just... I wish you nothing but the best, Denise. I just hope so many great things happen in your life all the time because you deserve it. I mean, I just feel like uh, there's got to be someone, you have some angels now looking over you and I hope things are going well today. Thank you. Um, I do appreciate it. And I appreciate everything you are doing and Emily's hope. Thank you so much. You're welcome. I did want to mention that Denise has managed to find peace and happiness and is now remarried. Thank you for listening to this episode of Grieving Out Loud. I'm Angela Kennecke. If you like what you're hearing, please leave us a positive review. You can also connect with us online at emilyshope.foundation. Wishing you faith, hope, and courage.